Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to be back uh, among you this morning. I want to say good morning to all of you up north uh, in Port Perry. Glad you're uh, with us this morning and everyone at a cottage still. Uh, Good morning to you. We love you. We hate you. We love you. All right. We're so glad that you are here today. I had just spent a week preaching in Slovenia, uh, worshiping and leading among uh, part of our team there with hundreds of missionaries, hearing amazing reports of young adults and adults who were giving their lives in the middle of the refugee crisis, talking to church planters in Germany who were planting churches where former Muslims and Germans were now running churches together in the name of Jesus. It was a profound uh, week of hearing the good news of Jesus in a very broken continent. I was on my way home, and I had to catch another flight beyond Toronto because my family was still vacationing, and as I was sitting there, I was looking at Instagram like we all do when we're bored, and uh, CNN came up, one of their feeds, and as I was watching it, I was stunned. A small group of refugees uh, crashed onto a coastline in southern Spain. It was filled with tourists, and they were running for their lives. I watched to see if any single one of the tourists would run to them, help them, give them water. No one moved. As I watched this unfold on Instagram in 25 seconds or so, not only was that disturbing, it was what happened next that so broke my heart. Very rarely do I read the feeds underneath these things because they get me angry and I sin. But suddenly as I began to see this, I was struck. One person wrote, I wish they had drowned in the ocean. Another person said, I wish they'd go back to their country and die. Another person wrote, they're going to take our jobs. I'm like, you stupid American. They're, not, they're in Spain. They're not even in the States. And as I watched this happen, I was so, so angered by the lack of compassion and love. And I never responded to these, so I decided I was going to post 1 Corinthians 13. What love is. Love is patient and kind. And, and so I went to post it, and to my shock, up came the filter that said, what you are posting is inappropriate and cannot be put here. And I said, how absolutely interesting that the very thing that needs to be said in that moment is banned. So as I was watching that, I was stunned and I was broken. And then, of course, we've all seen what's happened in the last two weeks in the States with racial riots and neo-Nazis walking in the United States chanting, Jews will not replace us. And then in the last 24 hours, if you've been watching the news, multiple terrorist attacks in Spain in the name of God. As I was thinking over this last week and a half of refugee and violence and death and fear, I wanted to come back and remind us as a church that there is an answer to this, and his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ can change a human heart. Politics cannot do it. Uh, Listen, the only thing that will resolve the world tearing itself apart at its core is Jesus because Jesus changes the human heart to such a place where actually enemies become family members and we become what will happen in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And it is so incredibly important that we remember this and that we as Christians are not consumed by the fear we see around us. Do not forget that our movement was birthed in an empire where human life was nothing, violence was extolled, racism was normal, and slavery built an empire. And in the middle of that, our movement sovereignly was birthed by God. And do not forget, in the middle of that empire was a Jewish faith that Jewish men woke up every morning and declared, I am glad I am not born a woman, and I am glad I am not born like a non-Jewish dog. And out of that and out of the Roman Empire, God did a new thing through Jesus and produced the church. And so the world has not changed, but our movement reminds the world there is a unity that is possible beyond what we are seeing. And so I've decided to come back to the book of Ephesians, to the two prayers we've already looked at, because we need to be reminded and have confidence in this time of darkness and be truly, truly unfearful. Because as Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, he actually dealt with these very issues. See, if you want to understand chapter 1 and the great prayer there, and chapter 3, the prayer that Lori preached out of, then we need to see chapter 2. Hear these words afresh in light of everything I've just said. Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our what? Peace. Who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. For through him we, all of us, have access to the Father by one spirit. Peace the removal of hostility, access to God through the Spirit. That is the answer to the craziness we are seeing in our world. And when you come to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes these words, in him and through faith in him, we approach God with freedom and in confidence. But don't miss the we. So since this is true, and since this is one of the great privileges we have as Christians, and since this is the only foundational act of unity the world will never ever fully understand but is given to us, in this moment, Paul then prays and says, I must continue to pray because actually I need to pray what has been given to you and what you've been blessed with and everything that God has done is doing needs to be deeply applied. And why does he pray this prayer? It is simple because if you look at the book of Ephesians, Paul then begins to say, I'm going to show you what unity looks like long-term, where the rubber meets the road. I'm going to talk about husbands and wives and slaves and masters and kids and parents and leaders and church and Jews and non-Jews. And so in the middle of this understanding everything at stake, Paul cries out, oh God, let them not just intellectually know, let them begin to live out the mystery incarnate of our unity in Jesus. And the reason why he prays this is because he understands, if you read the whole book of Ephesians, that our unity will how, is how we stand against principalities and powers. It actually becomes the barrier for them getting a foothold back in the church again. And also he understands this, that Christian unity is actually one of the greatest doors for the lost to come home because when they see a heaven-given unity, they can find nowhere else on earth. They might be intrigued that peace is better than war. So he says, for this reason, this is why I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. For this reason, in the light of all I have just said to you, I need to pray for you. Paul, if you read Ephesians, starts with the glory of God and the amazing conversion we have to the power of the good news, and now he prays it in and over us. And this second prayer is rooted in and built upon and presumes and wholeheartedly embraces the sovereign work of God. And the prayer is given for one reason, that we as a church will get it. And get what? Well, all the things that have been stated over us. See, it's one thing, I preach this all the time, to hear something. It is another thing to intellectually understand something. It is a whole other thing to believe, embrace, to experience, and live out what is true. 
Can you see this great man of God kneeling down in his jail cell, beginning to pen and pray out one of the most glorious, most encouraging prayers in all of history? A prayer not just for the church in Ephesus, but a church, a prayer for every church in every generation. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Don't read this too quickly. quickly. As I pointed out when we went through Ephesians years ago, the physical act of kneeling gives us great insight into Paul. See, for Jewish men, standing was the most common posture for prayer. We still see that daily at the wailing wall, even to this moment. But the act of kneeling is powerful, expresses within Paul's experience earnestness, emotion. It beacons, it requests nothing less than divine attention, heaven itself. Solomon knelt at the dedication of the temple. Stephen knelt at his own martyrdom. Peter knelt as Dorcas lay dying. Paul said his final goodbye on his knees with the Ephesian elders. Jesus, when he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, knelt and prayed. And so with deep emotion, Paul prays, Father... Paul chooses to pray to the fountainhead of life, to the source, the origin of physical life, the origin and source of spiritual life and unity. He calls God Father. Now, I've preached this before three times in the last two years, and unashamedly, I'm going to preach it again. Do you remember what Paul actually wrote to another church in Rome? Romans 8:15. the spirit you receive doesn't make you a slave again, so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit you receive, brought about your adoption to sonship, to daughtership, and by the Holy Spirit, we now get to cry out to God and call Him Abba, Father. God at His core is a relational God. That is why we as Christians call God Father. Understand that Father is a name. It expresses part of God. Now, some of you, as I've preached before, this image is so profoundly hard because your Father was broken. Your dad was not there. Your dad was not what he was called to be. And that is fair, and the pain and damage is real. But the name cannot be jettisoned. You cannot start calling God mother. That is not a revealed name of God. He has both physical, I mean both male and female emotional expressions within himself. But father is a name. Remember what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer? Our father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. This name has to do with love, and this name has to do with origin, and this name has to do with security, and this name has to do with care. And by changing the name, you actually change the one you're addressing, so call him Father. One person wrote, pious Jews aware of the gap between a holy God and sinful human beings would never have dared address him as Abba, Daddy, or Dear Father. Jesus, within uh, his teaching, shocked many of his contemporaries by referring to God as his Father and inviting, actually, his followers to do the same, rather depicting God as a typical Middle Eastern patriarch who wielded considerable power within the family. He depicted him primarily as tender, compassionate, extending grace to both sinner and the self-righteous. See, God is a Father. God is personal. God is tender. God is grace. And the most powerful, the most jaw-dropping, the most life-changing expression of this name is found, of course, we know when Jesus gave the parable of the prodigal son. The son comes to the father and says, I hate you, I wish you were dead, give me my money now. The father, breaking all the rules of the culture, decides to do so. If you read the story, the son goes away and basically clubs and whores and drinks his money away. He's now on the verge of death, and he remembers that actually his father's servants and slaves live a better life than him. And so he actually decides to go home to his father. And if you know the story well, it says in verse 20 in Luke 15, when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. 
His heart pounding, he ran out, he embraced him, he kissed him. The son started the speech, Father, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you. I don't ever deserve to be called your son again. But the father wasn't even listening to him. He called his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes, and you dress him. Put the family ring back on his finger, sandals on his feet, get the grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to have a feast tonight. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead, now alive, given up for lost, and now now found. And if you know the story well, the father in the story represents God. And as another historian and pastor wrote, the father in Jesus' story failed to act as his listeners would have expected. Instead of waiting at home for his son to come crawling back as any dignified Middle Eastern father would have done, the father in Jesus' story keeps a lookout for him. As soon as he spots him, he runs, he throws his arms around his wayward son and showers him with kisses, kisses, but there's more. As you've heard before, the traditional Middle Eastern men wore long robes, and they were forbidden to run in public. They never did it, and so to run in public and show your legs is deeply humiliating, and the father knows this, and he runs, and he does this for a reason, because he chooses to deflect the community away from his son to himself. People would focus on the extraordinary sight of a distinguished, self-respecting landowner humiliating himself in public by running down the road and revealing his legs to take back a son who should not be a son any longer. See, that is the truth of our movement. God the Father runs for you. God the Father moves towards you. God the Father guards, and God the Father forgives, and God the Father welcomes, and God the Father is what a father is supposed to be. And so Paul begins his great prayer about unity with the Father, and he does it because we together get to call him Abba. Paul saw a separation in the human family. We all might be the children of God in the sense God has created us, but only those who've met God through Jesus can call him Abba. And out of this moment of common unity, he prays for three things, love and presence and power. He says, I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being. I pray out of all these riches. Well, what riches is he praying over? Well, you've heard them this summer. It's what Lori preached out of and Yerby did it weeks earlier. Every single thing that has been stated over us as Christians, and actually why I want to repeat this message again today or this passage today, is because I want you to see the profound unity that we have together that crosses race and boundary that the world does not understand. This is what is declared over every single Christian on earth right now, over us gathered here today. We together, no matter our skin color, are saints. We together have grace. We together have peace with God. We together have been included in Christ. We together are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, both men and women. We together are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We together are chosen and we are called and we are foreknown and we are adopted. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is what Paul has penned in Ephesians so far. We have redemption and we have forgiveness. We together have been branded and tattooed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have eternal security. We together are God's possession. We're no longer spiritually dead. We're no longer marked by trespass or sin. We no longer are part of the world's way of thinking or living. We no longer are owned by the devil. We've been saved by grace alone. We're no longer under the burden and lie that we actually get to know God by what we do. And we actually reject the idea that God loves us more because of our holiness. We do good works because he has done so much to us and through us and for us by Christ. The book of Ephesians says that we together in all of our diversity are God's poem. 
We together, Jews and non-Jews, black, white, Hispanic, fill in the blank, have been brought into a new family. Jesus has given us peace with the Father and peace with each other. We together get to approach God with freedom and confidence. We are actually citizens of a new city. We're members of a new family, and we together are the building blocks of a new temple. This is why in one of his earliest books, Paul said these words, these shocking, mind-bending words written in the Roman Empire and and Galatians 3.28, there is not Jew or Greek, or Gentile, or slave, or free, or male, or female. You are one in Christ Jesus. And that is what Paul is praying out of all this unity, all this riches that we have. And he says, and I pray this because the Spirit of God is already in your inner being. The Holy Spirit is already in the place where our emotions and thoughts and our will stem from. So Paul prays, O Holy Spirit, have great influence and presence within us. Transform each person in the church to reflect all you have done and declared over them. You have such a strong influence at the center of your life and your heart, so we will be changed and we will not stay the same. We will not look like the world that is tearing itself apart. He says, why do I call upon the Father to send the Spirit? He says in verse 17, the answer is this, so that Christ, Jesus, may dwell in your hearts through faith. Never forget this this morning. See, the indwelling Holy Spirit brings Jesus' presence and allows us to access the Father. That is why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Paul prays that Jesus will take up long-term residence among all of us. He prayed the same thing or said the same thing in Galatians 4, 6, because you are his son or daughter. God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts and the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. He says, I want you to hear this this morning understand it, embrace. Great loving God, our Father, who sends the Holy Spirit that brings Jesus into us. I pray not only for power and not only for long-term residence, I actually decide to ask for more. I pray for love, for in all things love find their home. I pray for love between Christians and God himself. And so prayer request number two is repeated again, because as we've learned all summer, every single time Paul prays, there's a conversation about love. The second part of verse 17 says, but I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Paul uses mixed metaphors, plants and houses. You're rooted like trees and love is the foundation of the house. The roots are deep and the foundation is built upon God's love. You already have God's love with you, but I'm actually praying you'd experience it more and more. Now we've done this multiple times, myself and other speakers this summer. Let me again remind you what Christian love is. God-given love is this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It never, think about this word, this phrase, as we're looking at our world. It never dishonors anyone. Love never is self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects people. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. This is what Paul is praying. This love would grow deeper and wider among us. And notice, love is the first. It is the root and the foundation. It was Dr. Barnhouse years and years ago, an old, old preacher who said these words. I used this in 2013. Love is the key, and joy is love singing, and peace is love resting, and patience is love enduring, Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. 
Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness, and self-control is love holding the reins. Paul says this love is already among us, is established between us, and it roots us together. It allows us to love each other. It allows us to be different than the world. It allows us to minister alongside each other. And Paul says, praying over a church, I pray that this love between Christians would grow in a way that is unnatural. But then Paul cries out again that, that, they, that they and us would get it. It's almost like he's pleading while he's on his knees, please, Lord, let them understand this love, like this love that's already given. Let them really experience your love. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how, how, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Notice he prays for God's very power to help us love each other and actually help us to understand his love. He prays that we together, all God's people, the saints, would know God's love. It's like he's praying this, oh God, let an everyday normal Christian comprehend and understand the many vast dimensions of God's love. This love that breaks all that we think about. This love that bursts all our political categories. This, this love is like water that breaks over the dam. This love that's so consuming Paul literally is writing these words or praying these words. Lord, so many have walked with you and love you, but they still don't fully believe or understand or experience your love. And so since they do not fully understand, they do not love others yet the way they should. Paul prays, God, by your spirit, because they can't do it, let them get it. One pastor wrote these words. He said, this prayer is summarized this way. Oh God, would you so break in. We would know that God's love is wide enough to embrace the whole world. And God's love is long enough that it lasts forever. And God's love is high enough it can take all of us sinful people to heaven. And God's love is deep enough to take Jesus himself to the very depths to reach the lowliest sinner. That is the love of God. But do you hear what Paul is doing once again? I know it's a drum that I beat regularly here, but let me do it again. He's praying that we would go beyond intellectualism. Knowing God right is very critical and important, but to understand God, it's not just right thinking alone, it's encounter. It's right thinking and it's right feeling. It's orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And, and he prays, oh God, would they be surprised and overwhelmed and experience and continue to know the love of God. I always give the example of Swiss LA flies, fries. Let me do a different way. Like I just said, I had the great privilege of being in Slovenia with part of our team here. It is one thing to know Slovenia exists on a map. It is another thing to go online and, and uh, see pictures of it. It is another thing to watch videos. It's interesting, in our age and time, videos almost allow us to immerse ourselves there. But it is a whole other thing to actually go to the place and walk in the place and talk to the people and eat the food and experience the culture. And see, this is actually what Paul is praying, that we would not just intellectually know that God's love is true, that we would not actually hear the stories and pictures of others, we would not just listen to the stories or the videos of others, that we ourselves, every single one of us, if you're a Christian here today, would know God the Father as Abba and would actually walk in this love experientially ourselves. Knowing versus knowing. So Paul prays first for the power of God. 
Then he prays for the love of God in two directions, to heaven and among each other. And then he simply prays this very bold, very dangerous, very amazing prayer. He says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To know something that surpasses knowledge is a deliberate paradox, but of course, Paul prays this to God because he's basically saying this, God, fill your temple. God, come palpably among your people and overflow yourself among them. Bring yourself to them. We all know this, that every single Christian, if you're one here today, was baptized in the Spirit at conversion, but were called and commanded to be filled again and again. And Paul's prayer is this, God, would you bring your very presence among us, bring all that you are among us, flood us, empower us, overcome us, Lord, move among your people by your Spirit, nothing less and nothing more than you alone, not just your promises, we actually want you to be among us. Because when you show up, your power comes. When you show up, your love comes. When you come, your presence comes. Now, you may not know this, but everything I just said in Paul's prayer is one long sentence. You think I preach fast? Wait till you meet Paul in heaven. He didn't even take a breath when he wrote that. And at this moment, he stops. It's like he writes the sentence. There's no punctuation, and he stops this prayer. And he takes a breath. And the reason why he takes a breath is because he wants us to ask a question. He wants a gut check among us because here's the truth. We read this, especially we who have been Christians long term, and we go, this sounds great. This is impossible. This, this, this will happen some other time. And Paul says, no, it is not impossible. Paul, it's like he's saying to us, I'm not embarrassed. I am not, I'm, no, no, I am asking for the impossible. He says, my petition is great and grand, but I unashamedly cry out to the one that knows all and sees all and is fully present. And then he pens these words that lots of people quote, but never quote in context. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that's already at work within us. In Greek, this actually reads power upon power. God, would you not allow us to be limiting you? Would you come in great power? The work of God is already among us, but he's not done. More power, more love, more presence of Jesus. You can do this. You are immeasurably more than we can imagine, more than actually. So God, show up in such ways in our broken everyday Christian lives that the presence of God is present, the love of God is growing, and people will know God is among those people because His presence can be found. And Paul actually, in his penning this, confronts lack of faith in our church and confronts skepticism and says, no, no, I don't pray impossible prayers. I pray to a God who makes the impossible possible. And so then he ends this great prayer, as you know, because you heard it a few weeks ago, moving from prayer to praise. He moves back to worship, and he says, Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And we all can say together, Amen. Here's why he pens this. The church is the place and the space where God is working out his will. The church, us broken people hanging out together, is the place and space where he's working out his purposes. If you've read the book of Ephesians carefully, the descriptions of the church are so beautiful. He says we are the color of creation. 
He says, we are the wisdom and we are the diversity and we are the beauty of God. We together, he writes, are God's object lesson to the principalities and powers, Ephesians 3.10, that they lost and they'll never win again. He writes that God's glory fills the church throughout 2,000 years. His glory fills all the churches that are on earth at this moment. His glory fills all those who are already dead in the presence of God. And God's glory is found most in Jesus, for he is the only person that ever lived fully under the will of the Father. See, Jesus is our beginning, and Jesus is our Savior, and Jesus is our high priest, and Jesus is the source and the giver of our unity, and Jesus is the true head of the church. And Paul, when he pens this is saying, creation, oh yes, declares the glory of God, but there is now a greater glory to be found. It is in God's handiwork and the community that now gives the gift of reconciliation found in and through and bought by Jesus Christ. That's why he says, amen, amen, it is amen. It is true, it is done, and it can happen. Jesus has conquered everything that breaks the human family. See this passage for what it is. This prayer, which we know God will answer because he penned it in the scriptures, reveals that though many of us know God deeply and we've walked with Jesus, there is actually more for us on this side of eternity. There is more for you and for us. And simply Paul teaches us through this, these words. He says, I pray that unity will grow through love. I thought about neo-Nazis doing their thing. I thought about refugees running for their lives and people wishing them dead. The rise of nationalism, I mean, it just... And we're all sitting in the middle of this, even with different political views. Trust me, Jesus keeps this church together, not politics. And you look at the mess that we're in and the fear that is growing. And then Paul penned prayers that at their core begin to show the world why it can be different now. So what's our response? I'm going to lead you in some different responses. Number one, some of you here, some of you there, need to actually be okay that God is your Father. Because the love of God and the love we share among each other is damned and broken because of this. And so for some of you, today as we pray, your prayer is going to be, Oh Lord, I don't even know how to do that, but I want to know you as Father. And it will be one of the scariest prayers you pray, and it will be one of the most healing prayers you will utter. Because our world needs to know that there is a good Father, and He's the giver of good gifts. Can anyone say amen to that? And some of you need to know that. You love Jesus deeply. You just struggle with His dad. You don't need to, for they are one. The second prayer, we will pray that the Holy Spirit would come in great power. Do you notice that when Paul prays this, he prays that the Spirit of God, the presence of Jesus, would be found in the church in a tangible way. When he prays that God's Spirit would fill the church, what does he mean? He is asking for the Spirit of God to so come among us 
as D.A. Carson said, that there would be a power of holiness in the church, a power to think and act and talk in ways that are utterly pleasing to Christ, a power to strengthen our moral resolve, a power to walk in transparent gratitude before the Father, a power to be humble, a power to be discerning, a power to be obedient, a power to be trusting, a power to grow in conformity with Jesus. When you pray for the Holy Spirit to come, when we pray for revival, when we pray for the ever-growing work of the Spirit, because we're not afraid of the Holy Spirit in this church, when we ask Him to come, the very first thing that will always happen is holiness goes up, not experiences. That's what we're asking for, the holiness of God and the character of God, and also we're praying for signs and wonders and all 21 gifts to be lit on fire and grow so there is evidence that God is among us. But he prays, oh, that God would send his spirit. And then he prays this very important, very timely prayer, prompted twice by two of us to preach. Let us understand the love of God. So many of us It's why Paul says you can't just do this yourself. It is paradox, beyond knowledge. And so some of you are going to have to pray today, Lord, I know you love me. I've read the Bible. I I believe it. I don't know. I can't move it from here to here. And this is the prayer for you. For you pray, oh Lord, you have to do something impossible in me. God, come close, invade me, come into my privacy, come into my immaturity, come into my selfishness, come through the walls I've put up, the boundaries on my own turf. Make the presence of Jesus so real, and I sense your love so strong that I cannot actually run from you any longer. Some of us, it's about fatherhood. All of us need to pray for the power of the Spirit. Some of us, it is to understand the love of God. But Paul's real emphasis of his prayer is we would love each other. And here's why I came back to this passage. The greatest, or one of the greatest, apologetics we have now, the defense of our faith, is that we actually show in Toronto and around the world that there can be a unity and a love between people that is impossible. And Paul boldly prays that Jews and non-Jews and women and men and slave and free would be one in Christ, different roles, yes, different economic, yeah, yes, but one in Christ and actually love each other. If we want to show a world that is turning on itself, that our gospel has authority, let us love each other as he prays. So why don't we stand, why don't you stand up in Port Perry? If you're not in a car, you can stand too. And we know there are multiple postures for prayer in the scriptures. Some kneel, some stand, as we found out. But again, I'm just going to ask this because it's easy, and I know some of you are uncomfortable with this because of your personality, which is fine, I get that. But I'm just going to ask you to step out. And if can everyone just open their hands like this? You know, if you're not used, you don't have to do this. It's okay. Just right here. We call this the Baptist beginning right here. Okay. And we're just going to pray about this stuff, right? And this is saying to God, I am open. And by the way, if you're not open, we're going to close our eyes. You can put your hands down. Because if you're not, then don't do it. So let's pray these things. Number one, Lord, thank you that you've lavished us with so many riches. And you've done it together. 
and our great diversity, not just in our church, with so many nations are now found, but right across the world. But we need to pray for you, uh, through a few things. Number one, some of us, we can't deal with the love of God because we can't get by that you're a father. So here's what we're praying. Lord, in this moment, would you begin to redeem the name of Father, who you are, first person of the Trinity, to some among us. I actually pray you'd begin to heal them in Jesus' name. Can everyone just say amen to that? Yeah. Second of all, together with our hands open before you, Lord, we are unashamedly at our church asking for the fullness of God to descend into this church. Unashamedly. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to our church again. We know you're here, but we welcome you. We're saying this at this site. We welcome you. We pray that the Holy Spirit would show up at our dinner tables, in our connect groups, when we're on the toilet, everywhere. Holy Spirit, come. When we're in the mall, when we're at work, and when we especially gather, Holy Spirit, Without you, we never hear Jesus. Without you, your word will never be understood. Without you, we never get to see the Father. Holy Spirit, if we have ever grieved you, even this summer, forgive us. You are most welcome among us. Can everyone say amen to that? Yes. Yes. Third, Lord, some of us here love you, but don't get your love. And we don't just mean in the emotive way. So here's our prayer. Because you say you will do immeasurably more. And it's connected to the love of God. So Lord, would this church know the love of God? In a way I can't preach or we can't psychologically work out. Would you go beyond paradox in sometimes your silence and sometimes your presence? But would you let us know, like just let us know the love of God for us. And here's our last prayer, hands all open. In our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in all the barriers that are between us, may we show the world what love looks like. So Lord, help us to love each other this year. As thousands of people are about to take Alpha and join churches like ours, may they walk into a church that's broken, but genuinely demonstrating love. And lastly, we just pray this. Oh, Father and Son, not just us, send the Holy Spirit across the earth in all of its brokenness and bring people to yourself. People who hate others, people who march and hate, people who want to murder and kill, people running for their lives. Oh, may the gospel of Jesus Christ expand from one end of the earth to the other and make enemies, friends, and family. We, we, we pray this in the name of God the Father who called us, God the Son who died for us and prays for us at this moment, and God the Holy Spirit who fills us. He is our security and our hope of resurrection. Amen. So now we're going to take communion together. Would you say that's an appropriate response today? So what we're going to do is we're going to have communion passed to you. 
Communion, of course, is based on when Jesus, just before he died, took bread and said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup of wine at the Passover meal and says, my blood is going to be spilled as new covenant about forgiveness. And he says, you do this when you gather in remembrance of me. And so today, as I always say, hundreds of millions have already done this or are about to do this. And if you're a Christian, you're welcome to this table. That means you've confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you really follow him and believe in him. If you're not a Christian, don't take this. You've not embraced the one it represents. But you always can say yes, even when it's passed, and take it. And lastly, if you're on the run as a Christian and you refuse to submit, the scriptures are clear, do not take this until you're ready to humble yourself and come home like the prodigal son. But as we take this, here's what I want you to say, either in your heart or out loud. Not only say thank you, Jesus, for your death and resurrection, I want you also to say... I have unity with others because of the work of Jesus Christ and declare that we will fight for this unity as a sign of the new heavens and the new earth. So let's joyfully, with hope, participate in the Lord's Supper where we're reminded of his grace, his love, his forgiveness. And let us be remembering that what he has started here will actually find itself in its perfection in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's take this joyfully together today. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.